This is a WRAL News special presentation. Coronavirus. Facts, not fear. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us as we continue to track the spread and impact of COVID-19 in our community. I'm Deborah Morgan. And I'm David Crabtree. Tonight, we're going to hear from local health experts about what's going on now and what we can expect as we attempt to move forward. First, let's check in with Gerald Owens in the newsroom for the latest headlines. Gerald. David, the big headline out today, this battle to slow this virus is just beginning and we all need to do our part. Today, new suggested guidelines and a new tone from the White House. The president's coronavirus task force outlined new guidelines today for our country. It includes recommending against gatherings of more than 10 people, avoiding bars and restaurants, and stopping or limiting unnecessary travel. Now, it should be noted that several states and cities have already shuttered eating and drinking establishments. A couple of other headlines, there are 36 confirmed cases in North Carolina. 15 of them are in Wake County. The Dow plunged again today, down nearly 3,000 points. It was struggling before the president mentioned the virus may send the country into a recession. And all Triangle YMCA facilities are closing in about an hour until at least March 25th. Now, before I send it back to you, I want to mention the president also said we could be dealing with coronavirus until July or August at the earliest. The bottom line is we have a long way to go. Back to you. Gerald Owens, thank you. Joining us now, uh, Dr. Elizabeth Tilson, the North Carolina State Health Director. No stranger uh, to any of us now. Thanks for coming back in. Steve Lawler is the president of the North Carolina Healthcare Association. And Katie Galbraith, president of Duke Regional Health. Everybody's busy. Thanks for giving up your time tonight. Dr. Tilson, let's start with you. We're calling this facts, not fear. So put into perspective now how many cases we have, how many tests you've done. And I believe you said today one person in the hospital out of the positive cases, correct? Right, so what we're seeing across the state is a slow uptick in the number of cases, which I think we were expecting. To date, um, all of the people that we have the, the um, information on, everybody's had either um, history of travel out of state or a known contact with a person. Um, so we still don't have what we call um, documentation of community spread. Um, now we are, which is, which is good news. Mm -hmm. We do though expect that there probably is some low level community spread out there. And so that's why you've seen then a lot of the ramped up um, recommendations and mandates that you've seen over the, over the week um, in order to help um, do that uh, social distancing. Um, in order to really slow um, the uptick of the, of the cases um, across the state. Um, but right today, the majority of people, vast majority of people um, who had been positive have been doing fine and been able to stay at home. So that's a good thing. We don't know yet if any of those early cases have rotated into the column of recovered, do we? Um, I don't know at the individual level, but what we have now is some good evidence that really um, if you are eight days after the onset of symptoms and then 72, hour, 72 hours after having any symptoms, then you're considered recovered. So my guess is some of those people have now probably rolled off into that recovered uh, Dr. Tilson, earlier today in your news conference, and I'm paraphrasing you, uh -huh. but you said basically that we're better off today than we were yesterday and we're hoping to be even better tomorrow. Right. And yet this afternoon from UNC, we're seeing predictions that as early as early April, we could see more than a thousand cases in North Carolina. That's a major jump being predicted in two weeks. Where do we fall in that? Yeah, and so some of the, it's difficult with some of those predictions because you can do the predictions without all the social distancing pieces that we yes. put into place. So making a prediction 
with the level of social distancing makes that a little bit of a hard calculation. But what we're trying, and, and the point of social distancing is not to prevent people from getting infection. It is to really decrease that peak so that we're sure we can respond to people as they are getting that infection. So we want to see a dampening of that peak. And so how that the analytics work with how many people at what pace with the amount of our social distancing, that's a hard thing to predict. But we're trying to be really proactive so we can dampen that peak so we can be in the best shape as possible mm -hmm. to respond. Well, and I think it's so difficult too because some people hear some of those alarming numbers and they are more panicked, they're more worried. So yeah. how do we calm people? Because I feel as though sometimes there's so much information coming in. Katie just talked about this being the first epidemic really in yeah. the social media area. So Dr. Tilson, how do we calm people? Yeah, and I think I think you're right. I think this is the first crisis we've had within this in the evidence or in the arena of social media, right? So I think a always make sure you're getting information from trusted resources. Go to our website. Go to the CDC website. Making sure watch programs like this that you have fact, not fear, and do the things that you can do, right? There's when you're in a case of uh, of fear and anxiety and that fear of not knowing what to do adds to that. So do the actions that you can take. And the actions we've talked about, the, the, the everyday practical actions, right? So wash your hands, don't, don't touch your face, wipe down all the surfaces, stay away people that from are sick, and then practice the social distancing um, recommendations. So I think if people can take control of their actions, that helps to allay their fears. I'd like to get a response from the two of you about what we have heard, some predictions of worst case scenarios. Mm -hmm and running out of ICU beds, not having enough respirators across the country. That would include North Carolina. As you look at Duke Hospital, the system, you look at the healthcare industry, uh, what type of preparations are you making with the president telling governors today, you need to find your own respirators. We'll help you pay for it, but we can't do the work for you. Yeah, I think that's an excellent question and um, you know, First of all, I, I do believe we are well prepared and we're well positioned in this state. Uh, certainly at Duke Health, uh, you know, we have increased our critical care capacity over the years and we built a critical care a ta bed tower on our university hospital campus. We've enhanced with 24-7 intensivist coverage in our critical care units at our two community hospitals. And so, um, but the reality is right now we have, uh, you know, we bump up against that capacity. So what we're doing is being really proactive and looking at on a daily basis now, you know, what are, what are the, the cases that potentially could be postponed. So, and you know, we've heard a lot about elective cases, postponing elective cases. I think it's important to remember that an elective case doesn't mean that it's an optional case, right? So uh, when, when someone is coming in for care, we need to carefully balance the need uh, and the burden of their own disease and, and whether delaying that operation, for example, uh, that surgery would uh, increase their risk over time. And so we have physicians who are meeting along with our administrators on a daily basis to look at that and look at how we uh, decrease capacity so that we will be able to manage uh, what, what, what we may see in terms of surge over time. Steve, is this a concern here in North Carolina? Obviously cities that have a more dense population and the hospitals trying to serve a more dense population in New York City, for example, right. would, would be worried about this. Do we have to worry here in North Carolina? Yeah, so what, what Katie described is something that's going on throughout all 130 hospitals 
throughout our state. So, you know, ever since, you know, this started to appear in the United States, hospitals in North Carolina started planning. So, as Katie said, you know, we've, you know, kind of taken the plans that were done during H1N1 or plans that we're required to have every year to respond to a disaster. We've tightened those up because this is unprecedented. It's different than anything we've dealt with before, even though we've dealt with floods and hurricanes and people have been heroic. Well, we're prepared to be heroic again. So I think what we're seeing are, are hospitals and health systems throughout the state kind of looking at you know, their daily capacity, looking at what's planned for the future, and then making sure that they've got additional supplies, additional staff, you know, plans to, uh, to help uh, patients and families actually access care outside the hospital. One of the things that's really kind of a blessing in North Carolina, if you have one of these, about 80% of the state's population can get care through a virtual visit. Hmm. So every he hospital health system in the state has a virtual platform where somebody can download the app from the health system that they receive care and they can do a virtual visit to help prevent them from going to the emergency department or going to their primary care physician if they don't need. And that's a great asset and tool for you know, kind of social distancing and, and kind of hunkering down in, in place. You know, I appreciate what you say about being heroic and in national disasters we have been, but that's when there's an end in sight. Oh yeah. That's when the storm has gone through and then we're picking up the mess afterwards. There's no end in sight right now. How do you be heroic when you don't always know what you're dealing with? So we, we have a fair number of uh, you know, kind of great staff throughout the state that are prior service. And when you talk to them, these are folks that have been deployed to you know, Iraq or Afghanistan. You know, they describe the situation very mm. much the same way that they describe the tempo and the pace there. So it's really about taking care of each other, looking out for each other, it's having a good work rest plan, and then it's you know, really about leadership being visible and making sure that people have what they need to do that good work. I think the other piece, and this is really unique to this situation, we have an opportunity as North Carolinians to care for each other. So you know, take care of your neighbor, take care of that healthcare worker, that first responder that's going to work every day to ensure that you and your loved ones are safe. So, you know, one of the beautiful things about North Carolina is, is people care about each other. You're so right. And this is a chance to really kind of, you know, demonstrate that every day. Absolutely. Thank you all very much for this portion of our program. We have much more on this very important topic when we come back. Welcome back. We're talking about the coronavirus, facts versus fear. With us tonight, Dr. Elizabeth Tilson, the North Carolina State Health Director, Steve Lawler, the President of North Carolina's Healthcare Association, and Katie Galbraith, President of Duke Regional Health. Yep. Dr. Tilson, let's go back to you and talk about testing, because I know you've, re you've received a lot of questions about testing today. We've had more testing come online. Walk me through the process. I don't feel well. I have a cough. I may be running a fever. I've tested negative for the flu what is the likelihood I can get tested? And where do I go to get that test? Yeah, so um, obviously testing has been a big point of conversation over the past couple weeks. I think we're in a lot better place 
now. Um, then we then we have been we've done a huge amount of work really trying to be sure that we have that capacity not only at the state lab and we have now a lot more ability to test more people but also we've been um, a lot of commercial labs have come online and health system labs have come online as well so that's been really really helpful there's a lot of different places that those tests can be run and so therefore where you can get tested it'll depend um, some people that are going through their health system so some, I call my doctor mm -hmm. and I say I don't feel well and they send me someplace? Is that how it works? It'll, I think it'll depend a lot on, on your practice and, and um, some practices are equipped and have the, the supplies to be able to do the sample collection there. Um, and in fact, we just sent out provider guidance just this afternoon on a step-by-step, -step, if you want to do it in your practice, how to walk you through that. Um, some practices don't have those, those sampling supplies. Um, and so there's um, other opportunities are through our local health departments, through our health systems. And the other thing that we're doing um, this week is also think if through our public-private partnerships to set up alternative um, sample collection sites in order to make it um, um, getting that sample collection more accessible. Are these in the parking lots and the drive-through areas that we've been hearing? I think it'll about? depend. As we look across the state, they're going to be set up in different in different places. But we're trying very hard to make it make that um, that um, if if you're meeting the criteria. Remember, the criteria is that you have a fever, you have a symptom of lower respiratory symptoms, so cough and shortness of breath, and then flu negative. I'll just say that we have a lot of flu in North Carolina now, a lot of flu in North Carolina, and of the tests that we've run, a low percentage actually are coming back positive for COVID. So if you have a flu-like illness, you are far more likely to have the flu or another virus than COVID-19. So I just want to make sure that we're, we're aware of that. But we are really, we know that people getting access to the, the sampling um, has been a barrier. So we've been working really hard um, and got that guidance out, thinking about other sites, our health systems are coming on board, and then the laboratory um, testing behind to run that run the test, a lot mm -hmm. more capacity there. So. And the odds are the more people are tested, the more cases for positive we mm -hmm. are ultimately going mm -hmm. to see. Yeah. Is there a, 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 an equation somewhere within all of this that lets us know we're out of the woods? Is there a target number of tests of people to know that we have surpassed where we have to be? Who wants to take that on, Dr. Tilson? Yeah, I'll take that, and I think the answer is no. I think that when we think through, so testing helps you in the beginning of an outbreak. It helps you when you're, as we talk through how you respond to an outbreak, the first stage is what we call containment. So that's that rapid identification of somebody and then their contact tracing. If you want to really try to minimize the spread. As we move through and have more community spread, um, then you also want testing in that beginning so you have an idea of how much of community spread that you have. But once you have documentation of community spread, then the actual importance of the testing goes down. Is it easier to control though if we have a clear picture of how many people actually test positive? It really is a clearer picture of how widespread the disease mm. is. Because then once we, if, if and when we have widespread community disease, then, then we know that answer. Then we can change from having people tested to Ooh, you have symptoms, so if you, if you are sick, stay home. If you are clinically well enough, stay home, and it's only you want to seek medical care if you need that supportive medical care. So how you shift and how I will respond depends on how widespread the, the disease is. So there's not a magical number. It really mm. is 
do we have documentation of widespread disease, then testing isn't as helpful, um, and then we can switch to then, if you're sick, stay home, and then you seek medical care if, if you need it. Right. I think we're all doing a great job of washing our hands, of using the sanitary wipes. I mean, we are certainly around the newsroom here. It is oh more gosh, social distancing, yes. a lot of changes are to be had. Does it give you, and we talked about this right at the beginning, it's good news that all of the cases that we have so far are from travel or from contact with other people who have traveled. So that has to be a good sign that we all are doing a good job of not having it be a community spread. Is that accurate? Yeah, but um, we do expect there, again, we do expect there to be community spread. And again, remember that the vast majority of people, if they get this infection, it's going to be a mild to moderate um, illness. And so what we want to do is have it be, a, again, a slow burn and that most people have a mild, mild illness and that um, hopefully we can limit the number of people that have severe illness and then we can minimize the surge that our healthcare systems are going to have to respond to. So it's that really kind of blunting of that peak mm -hmm. and then that slow burn so that we can respond, we can respond to it and protecting the most vulnerable around, around us. And if you remember last week, we were really focusing on, uh, we know people are at higher risk of clinical severity are older people over 65 with underlying medical if we can protect mm -hmm. those people and have a slow burn with people that have that lower risk that helps our healthcare system to be able to respond to the people that that need it yeah, and I think that's uh, I think that's a great point so I think when we think about the work that the secretary with you know dr. Cohen and dr. Filson are doing with their teams you know to kind of help mitigate you know uh, rapid uh, um, uh, contamination of, of, of this virus, it allows hospitals and health systems to really focus and kind of harden their facilities so that we're focused on those that are most vulnerable. I mean, the fact is the majority of people who get this um, can take care of themselves at home. So we really want to kind of reserve those precious assets mm -hmm. for those folks that are most vulnerable and you know are elderly or medically compromised. That's who we're focusing on right now. And, and Steve, with that in mind, we're going to take a break. When we come back, I'd like to talk about how what hospitals are doing today, not only to get ready, but what you're dealing with with patients coming in today and their families. Right. We'll be right back. We're back. I'd like to talk to Katie Galbraith about, uh, in particular, what's happening with local hospitals and the new rules that are in place. It's a new normal for hospitals now. Not everyone can come in. I understand in some cases chaplains aren't allowed so, to see patients. So we, are, we have uh, really heightened our visitor restrictions. So we already had visitor restrictions in place because of flu and the widespread flu mm -hmm. in, uh, in our state. Uh, we heightened those actually starting today uh, at the hospitals throughout the Triangle. Uh, and so we are limiting at Duke to one, one visitor per patient. Uh, and, um, and we have a screening process uh, very similar to what I saw when I came into the studio today. You, uh, you have a wonderful person up front who mm -hmm. asked me questions uh, mm -hmm. to see if I had any symptoms. Um, and uh, so we're asking those questions, three very simple questions of our visitors when they come in and then patients are required to have only one visitor per patient. Do people that could have be their, clergy. 
do people have their temperature taken? You know, what does your emergency room look like as people just walk in the door? So currently we are not taking temperatures for visitors. Um, and our emergency department, uh, you know, actually is managing this very well. They are used to surges in capacity, surges in, in volume and, and the number of people coming in and, and those fluctuations. So uh, right now I think you would come and you would see that it is very similar to any other day in the emergency department. We call it sort of controlled chaos in the emergency <laughs> department. Uh, but, but our team is doing really well at managing that. And I would say that our patients also have been very understanding today as we've implemented this Steve, and the visitors. You, I'm sorry, you've been in this business how long? Uh, 40 years. What keeps you up at night now? Um, so I think the things that uh, you know, keep me up at night, especially when we're thinking about this, you know, one is, is staff resiliency. I mean, how are we making sure that we're taking care of those people that are taking care of others, making sure mm -hmm. that uh, they're cared for, they don't have to worry about uh, their children that are not in school, but we're going the extra mile to make sure that that's done. I think the second piece is how are we working together with public health and with the state to ensure we have consistent messaging? Because I think consistent messaging really helps build confidence amongst the public. Absolutely. That That's what how, we're trying to yeah, This is how we're going to work together to make sure that the 10 million people in North Carolina are taken care of. And then finally, it's speed to execution. How quickly can we take great ideas and then convert them into practical solutions you know, such as, you know, the drive-through clinics or, you know, soon patients will see hospitals that have an outer shell where patients may get triage before they get to the emergency department so we can separate those patients that may be positive that need to be tested with those patients that need to come in the emergency department for emergent care. I think you've all referenced this and I want us to do this again. While this can be a deadly disease, for a very small number of people, and if it happens to be in you and your family, that's terrible. But for the vast, vast majority, people will recover from this virus. Yes. And, and fewer people will be hospitalized, and we see at times, for something like flu or other illnesses. How do we continue to push that message for that to resonate with people? What can we do a better job of doing? Well, I think, I think, um, Programs like this, what you are doing here, uh, really focusing on facts, not fear. That's exactly what we need. We need to get out the factual information and be a source of truth for, for the community. Dr. Tilson, what would you like to see us do that we're not doing? Um, yeah, and I think that as we have more people that get the infection and then recover, it's going to be more and more of a norm. Um, I think thinking through, is there a way that, uh, obviously with keeping people's um, privacy, but a way to focus in on, there's a lot of people who will recover from this. The vast, vast majority of people are going to um, recover from this. And so I think us, again, stressing that with but I think we need to balance that. We do know there is a subset of our population that is at higher risk. So I think we need to be very mindful of protecting the people mm -hmm. at higher risk. And again, those are older people with underlying um, medical conditions. So thinking through making sure our, our nursing homes, our long-term care facilities are well protected, but then recognizing the younger and healthy people, um, if, they, if they get it, 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 mild, very moderate symptoms, it might feel like the flu or even, even less. So I think making sure people remember that, but also make sure there are a subset of population that we need to be very mindful of protecting. Do you think that we're overreacting at all? As mm. you know, we try to balance with this. We try to balance the fact that 
a lot of people will recover. Yes, it can be oh. deadly, mm -hmm. but it, a lot of people will recover. And yeah, the president is coming out today saying it could be July, August before we get through this. Limit your groups to 10 people. What do you think? I, I think that's a really good question. I think that's the question that, that many of us are, are asking and grappling with. But the, what, what we're trying to do here is really sort of flatten the curve. As Dr. Tilson said, not have everyone get sick at once, where we overwhelm mm. the right. healthcare system with those exactly. who are most acutely ill. The vast majority, again, are not going to get acutely ill, but we need to protect those who are at highest risk. And so that's really what we're trying to do here. And that's, that's the point of the social distancing. That's the point of all of the restrictions we've put in place. Uh, I think we're, we're a people that really value our independence. Um, but we're also a country that has a tendency to come together during tough or difficult times. Well, this is a tough and difficult time. And we're going to face this, and we're going to get over it. I, I do think Dr. Tilson said something really important. So hospitals are working closely with long-term care facilities and nursing facilities. Uh, you know, those those are populations we saw in Washington were at great risk, and we're making sure that we're helping them, and you know, their patients kind of Absolutely. you know succeed in this situation. Yeah. But I think the key is is not to visit. Sorry to interrupt you, but we have to close there. Stephen Lawler, thank you. Katie Galber, thank you for coming in. Dr. Tilson, thank you for thank coming you so back so much. <laughs> we so value the input that you're giving us so and important. the community. Mm -hmm. And thank you so much for joining us as we get through this together. Have a good day.